politics and above religion, a moral authority exists known globally as the ageless wisdom. It is the study of consciousness, the mystery of awareness, which cannot be measured, yet will not be denied. Ageless. Stay tuned as we explore consciousness, the fundamental nature of reality. Welcome to the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School with Michael Banner. Thanks for joining us. This is the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School on KPFK in Los Angeles. My name's Michael Benner. I missed you last week. We were preempted for a special fun drive, and I want to thank Christine Blasdale for doing that, and thank each of you for your financial support of this radio station. We are obviously commercial-free. You probably know, if not, you should know that this group of radio stations, Pacifica, five radio stations in total, uh, KPFK in LA, we have a station in Berkeley, and then there's Washington, D.C., New York City, and Houston, came out of a ban-the-bomb mentality in the late 40s after World War II, hence the name Pacifica, but also invented the idea of listener-supported non-commercial radio. This was long before there was any, you know, PBS, public broadcasting, or public radio, so to speak, educational radio. And uh, there's no confusing this with NPR, I don't think, as we're much more radical, and we don't take uh, any corporate underwriting. We'd like to keep it that way, but we need your support to do that. In other words, not only are we non-commercial, we don't accept any corporate sponsoring of any kind so that we're free editorially to say and do whatever we want, especially if it's unpopular. Where else are you going to go to get this broad diversity of opinion? Yes, all progressive but nevertheless, very diverse. And uh, that's what I love about KPFK, and I presume you do too. So thanks for listening, and, and thanks for supporting the station. And during the fun drive, you could kick in a few bucks. We'd really appreciate it. There are some wonderful station-wide premiums for $100, $150 as an annual contribution. Uh, a contribution as small as $25 per year makes you a voting member of KPFK. That means you can elect people for the local station board. We're very democratic and run by our listeners, owned by people like you. It's your radio station, especially when you make a tax-deductible contribution. <laughs> and I like the... Uh, Sustainer Circle. I'll talk more about this at the end of the show, but this is a way you can make a much smaller contribution of 15 or 20 $25, $50 a month, and that's just pulled right out of whatever account you'd like it to be removed from. It'll show up on your monthly statement, of course, and it is tax-deductible. And uh, so... All you have to do is point your browser to kpfk.org. We do have phone rooms. You could call 818-985-5735, but we've had to subcontract that out due to COVID. So 
it's sort of a it, it, it's sort of a clunky way, if I can admit it, uh, to make your contribution. I think it's so much easier and more elegant just to go to the website kpfk.org and poke around in there. Look for Sustainer Circle. Check out the different premiums and thank you gifts. But the main reason you make your contribution is to keep us on the air and make sure we're commercial free. So that's that's my plug. Again, I'll mention it again at the end of the hour. But I'm really excited and anxious to get into our program today. I'm talking to a fellow that I've interviewed before, most recently, uh, about a little over a year ago. We had Chuck Hillig on this program, and so we're going to reprise that show today and talk about consciousness and non-duality and what does it mean to be aware and, gosh, uh, maybe even what is reality? What does it mean that something is real? When we hear, especially in Eastern philosophy, all things are an illusion or a delusion, what in the world are they talking about? So I told Chuck we'd just jump into the shallow end of the pool and splash around a bit today and see what we can come up with. I first met this man in what must have been the early 1980s. And I interviewed him on a, a talk show over at uh, KLOS, the ABC uh, station here in L.A. We were both young men, and Chuck had a wonderful book. And I, I think, Chuck, you were a practicing psychotherapist in those days. Is that right? Is that- yes, I was. I was living in Ojai, and I was licensed. And, uh, yeah, you got it right. And since then, you've written... How many books? Have you kept track? Well, five books are currently out, and they're available on Amazon. And um, they've been published in, I think, six or seven languages now. Uh, I'm I'm just really happy to have them out there. And people email me and and contact me from different parts of the world, you know, to have a a discussion or just even set up a chat with me concerning something that had been triggered by something that I had written in one of my books. So I'm I'm happy to have those kinds of conversations. That's great. I was thinking uh, just the other day about the continuity of my interest in hypnosis as a teenager, really, and transmediumship, having read the Edgar Casey books and Jane Roberts books when I was in college. And then my study of hypnosis led to uh, so-called mind science, to science of mind and general interest in metaphysics and then Eastern philosophy and just how that's unfolded in my life. And here I am all these years later, even more fascinated than ever <laughs> by the nature of consciousness, doing a radio program that focuses on the study of consciousness and such a fascinating and yet elusive subject. How did you as a psychotherapist become interested in philosophy and especially the esoteric philosophies? Well, I I became interested before I was a therapist. I had been born and raised as a Catholic and uh, had done, you know, the Catholic grade school, the Catholic high school, the Catholic university with the Jesuits. 
I, I had done all of that. And when I was about 21 or 22, I, I began to have um, like a shift inside me where I was not feeling satisfied. My heart was not satisfied by, by the answers that I was getting from my professors. And I began to slowly withdrew, withdraw from, from connection with the Catholic Church. And I wandered figuratively for about three years through some kind of spiritual wasteland and didn't know quite what or how to de define my, my connection with, with something that was otherworldly. And then, um, as serendipity often has, it, it interjected and, and showed somebody, a friend of mine, suggested that I read Siddhartha, which I'm sure you've read and are familiar with, and many, many of your, most of your uh, listeners would be. Uh, and Siddhartha really changed my life. I was like water on parched earth. I was going, where has this stuff been? And I started to read everything I could on Buddhism and Hinduism and Taoism and Zen and finally went back to Taoism and and um, eventually around 1970 I found myself uh, fascinated by and drawn to the the books that had been written about uh, Ramana Maharshi and when I started to read like talks with with Ramana Maharshi, it was just like where where else can I go? This is this is it. There's no place else. The search is over. I'm not going to move beyond this because this seems to uh, be such a, a kernel or a core of truth for me that I, I felt um, satisfied in just resting in in what he was pointing at. And, and what he was showing. Um, so that I've been really, again, figuratively at, at the feet of Ramana Maharshi for more than 50 years now. If I'm not mistaken, I seem to recall seeing a picture of Ramana Maharshi with Albert Einstein. Could that be? Well, I remember seeing a picture of him with um, Paramahansa Yogananda. Ah. Um, and Carl Jung had something very wonderful to say about Maharshi. He said something about, and I'm, I know I'm misquoting this, but he said in the uh, in the white space that India is, the whitest of the white space is Maharshi. And and Mahatma Gandhi, my understanding is, used to send his staff. Uh, for kind of a spiritual R and R, when they got burned out about you know in the late forties and mid forties, to actually send them to the ashram to hang out with Maharshi for a bit before they they pulled themselves or had to go back and and get involved in the affairs of the world and what um, Gandhi was trying to do. I think as Westerners, when we look at these great teachers, these gurus in the East, we often view them in a religious context. We may ask, are they Buddhists or are they Hindu? As if Hindu is a single religion, right? Hinduism, like Christianity, it's thousands of sure. <laughs> variations. <laughs> but a lot of these guys are, I guess, Vedantists, aren't they? Doesn't it go back more to the culture of these ancient books like the Upanishads or the Bhagavad Gita and they really I mean guys like Vivekananda or more recently Nisargadatta and 
in, in others, Paramahansa Yogananda. I don't think of them really so much as religious teachers, as philosophers. What's your take on that? Well, I have a, a take that maybe will come as a surprise, but um, maybe the best way of describing it is as long as you think that that they were real people, that they that Ramana Maharshi was a person, that Buddha was a person, um, that increases the odds enormously that you're going to think that you too are also a real person. But they weren't, and you're not either. They have their origin, they meaning Christ and Buddha and Maharshi and Nisargadatta Maharaj and all of them, all of these great spiritual luminaries have their origin and their source from within the heart of hearts of who you are. They have you have brought them forth from your own heart. They are manifestations that you have created and put on the stage of the of the the world that you call your your life that you're walking through right now. You've you've peopled the stage of of your life with these spiritual luminaries in order to enlighten you, to uh, upset you, to point out things, to um, but but to you sprinkled them around, but they have their origin within you and and you and part of what what i i point out is that you have to own that you have to own that you are doing that 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 they're coming from you because if you start or whenever you try to separate yourself and say they are different than me they are higher than me on the spiritual ladder and I need to, you know, work really hard and stress and strain and climb up the spiritual ladder. And maybe I can, you know, kind of uh, get close to them in some way, uh, maybe to Maharshi or maybe even Buddha or Christ beyond that. But that whole um, way of looking at it stratifies it when, when it's not stratified at all. There is no ladder at all. There's no place that you have to get to. There's nobody lower than you, like uh, Putin or Hitler or anybody else. And there's nobody above you, like Maharshi or Buddha or Christ. You are the very consciousness that you're seeking. You are that. And you're, you know, part of part of the dance is pretending like you're not that. But But all of that is contained within you. And there's nothing that you have to do nothing that you have to learn, nothing that you have to um, study or pray to or meditate on in order to uh, be able to be who you actually are. You can't become more of what you actually are. You are consciousness itself. And there's just, you know, that's, it's like end of story. What else, what else is there? If there is no achievement or attainment in this regard, and nothing that we need to do. Maybe it's something we need to stop doing. <laughs> yes, but it's very difficult for the ego to stop doing it. The ego wants to be on its way to someplace else. It wants, it wants, it, like like the uh, the mind will never be enlightened. 
the mind always wants to go to a place where it can become satisfied or, or sanctified or perhaps made more whole. But it's it's this movement, and, and the movement is justified by um, the ego making what is and what's present not as okay as what's not present, what's, what is missing. So it's always around the corner someplace. It's always down the block or on the other side of the earth or in this ashram or in this book or at the feet of this master. That's where the answer is. So the ego wants to go from what is to what isn't. And that very separation is feed, feeds into the, the, the delusion that that separation does in fact exist because you're not going to go to a place where you already are you have to pretend that it's that you're not over there and that you need to go there in order to be okay and sanctified and enlightened and in some way enhanced recently in a in an interview on this show in fact recently talked to a fellow who told me about a phenomenon I had never heard of before, that uh, when people are shown two pictures, even if they don't seem to be related, that it's in inherent in the mind to begin to weave a narrative to connect those two pictures. And that his point was that we do that with our lives, that and we've heard this before, but he just seemed to have a, a deeper or broader understanding of it, that our lives are a story that we're telling ourselves, and largely a story of victimhood and victimization and what's been done to us. And searching for sympathy in our relationships with other people and understanding about what a struggle my life has been when, in fact, I'm the storyteller. Yeah, yeah, I know. Um, but that's, that, that is true. It's almost like your spiritual um, awareness can't really flourish until you give up um, the never-ending, repeating repetitive kind of story that you tell yourself about how you are right and about how other people have wronged you in some way. So until that gets resolved, you know, comfortably enough, uh, you know, you'll be engaged in and in, in entangled with uh, and entrapped by and attached to the, the story. And you'll stick to that story because that becomes like the um, the framework or the Christmas tree upon which you hang the ornaments of who you think you are. Your thoughts, your feelings, I did this, I have this, my, these fears, all that stuff kind of surrounds you and, and covers this framework. But the, And the framework is just, just ex exactly that. We do live in a world that we have to manage. I mean, rising up out of this story that we tell ourselves is the requirement to feed ourselves, to have access to water and shelter, and certainly 
many of us are excessive and our desires for material things, but nevertheless, there's always going to be some demand. You have to eat. You have to, in a modern world, you, there's bills you have to pay every 30 days. So sure. sometimes I think of that phrase, I don't know who gets credit for it, um, that we need to live in the world, but not of it. So is that a kind of a middle way? Is that a walk that we have to do to find a balance between the appearance of reality in three dimensions and time, the illusions that we're talking about in the stories we tell, balancing that with the reality of an eternal moment and existence beyond space and time? Yeah, I, I think... I think a balance can be reached um, through, certainly not through attachment, because attachment is uh, the entranceway to suffering. So we're talking about non-attachment, and non-attachment then speaks to what you were pointing at, Michael, that you're in the world, but you're not of it. You're involved with it, 100% involved, not saying, oh, you know, I'm much too, I'm much too spiritual to be, uh, have to do with this or have to do with that. No, to be involved with the drama, to be a, an appreciative audience to your own stuff that you created. You own your own dream. You own it. You say, I, somehow this is part of, this is, I'm creating this and I'm going to involve myself in this. I'm not going to uh, remove myself from it. I'm going to immerse myself in it. And in my willingness to immerse myself in it, I'm honoring it. I'm honoring the dream. I'm honoring the dance of me doing that. Let's talk about attachment and non-attachment as opposed to detachment. <laughs> right. Yeah. What that means in a in a in a practical sense. I have to take a short break and then we'll come right back. My guest is Chuck Hillig. He's an author, psychotherapist, philosopher, and dare I say, <laughs> proudly a friend of mine. And uh, it's great chatting with him. Stick around. We've got more on the nature of consciousness and what is attachment. We'll talk about non-duality, too. What in the world is meant by the non-dual nature of reality? Stick with us. This is the Mystery School on KPFK. Chuck Hillig is my guest today from the East Coast. You're in Virginia, aren't you? I am. I'm about 15 miles west of Fredericksburg. And Fredericksburg is about halfway between D.C. and Richmond. Is it, so is that Northern Virginia? Yeah, it's considered Northern Virginia, right? I'm about 65 miles southwest of D.C. I see. That's not so far uh, from Washington. Well, it's beautiful country, and I know you're very familiar with Southern California. You said you lived in Ohio for a while. and Oh, yeah. Long, long time. Maybe um, 37 years in California totally. And I think I was in Ohio at least 30 of them. How has Ohio come to be such a metaphysical center? I know that uh, uh, there's that wonderful library it, it like exists in another dimension up there that Cretona library uh, there's Krishnamurti's uh, 
place up there, uh, medit- what is it, Mount Meditation, Meditation Mount. And uh, it just seems to be such a metaphysical uh, spiritual community. Do you have any idea <laughs> how that came about? No, I, I really don't. I've, I've uh, been fascinated by why so many um, spiritually minded people seem to be drawn into that valley. There's such a concentration of them. Some of them are pretty far out. We've had uh, some strange <laughs> kinds that have shown up there, including, do you remember Marshall Applegate? Um, no. Well, I, he was one of those people that that they, you know, they did this, um, he had about eight or ten of his minions commit suicide down around San Diego. This oh, I do guy. remember that. He, yeah. So he came through recruiting people in the valley. He thought that this was rather fertile land <laughs> and a landscape for him to find, uh, you know, followers. I, I don't know if he if he caught any in his web at that point. But, yeah, he was one of the ones that showed up here. But the, we have many, many others that come and go and come and go. Yeah, I associate him with San Diego, and that was the cult that uh, was going to meet the spaceship that was hidden on the other side of the moon. And uh, Heaven's Gate, Heaven's Gate. Yeah, I think. there yeah, you go. There right, you go. right. My God. Well, let's go back to this. Uh, I, I, I teased going into the break this idea of talking about attachment, non-attachment, detachment. What do we? This comes up a lot in the spiritual studies. What are we talking about here, Chuck? Well, my take on the attachment when the ego is looking, when the ego becomes attached to something. That is when the uh, the control and the desire and the suffering shows up. When when the lens of that is is focused through the that um, that uh, negativity that that arises with it, it um, the suffering always is there because the ego is. Is the is the one who wants to suffer, as you pointed out. It's it's just like uh, it, it gets its validation more through the the pain of something, even more so than it does through its um, successful completion of a desire. So it becomes validated, and the, the prime directive of an ego is to survive at all cost. It has to survive. And uh, it, it discovers quite early on that the pain of not getting something or of, of having somebody inflict something upon them is, uh, is more validating, really, as, uh, as uh, the ego wants to stay separate than it does when it succeeds in something, when something's easy and, and it's successful. It wants to feel the, the other and there's no better and quicker way to feel the other than to get slapped in a sense, to get a sense of, well, I'm over here and they're over there and they're doing this to me, or I, I wanted this and I didn't get this and there's pain because of the suffering of it. So it's, a, it's an interesting dynamic and, and I think it really explains a lot of how people are in a lot of ways. They're, they're looking for that, that sense of 
the other. And you can get that that sense more so, like I said, with with something that you're pushing away uh, than you can with something that you've actually succeeded in getting. It's so ironic that the ego or the persona nature, uh, this identity that we've cobbled together in an attempt to get attention and acknowledgement and appreciation and acceptance from other people creates the sense of I'm not enough, creates the desire, but it's never fulfilled because either we don't get what we want or we get what we thought we wanted, but then we decided or realized that we didn't really want that, or it came with strings attached, (laughs) or we got it, but it's the wrong color, the wrong shape, the wrong size. I planted beefsteak tomatoes, I thought, and I got cherry tomatoes, and now I'm disappointed. (laughs) Hell, you still got tomatoes, you know. Uh, So it doesn't look like what I thought it would look like. And then, damn it, even when we do get what we want it doesn't last no it's very evanescent it just kind of vanishes it's very impermanent because that's part of it it's it's almost like the image that i get is like running downhill you have to keep on going for more and more and more and more oh and if you don't have something to go for and to either succeed or fail at getting uh, there's a sense of um, emptiness, a sense of non-purpose. Like, what do I do now? So people, you know, create these these kinds of um, places to seek out, whether it be internally or externally, in the thoughts that somehow that's going to make them happy. But nothing is going to make them happy uh, because happiness is not all it's cracked up to be. Happiness comes and goes. What you what you what what you're really more interested in at a deep level is not so much the happiness; it's to live in a state of constant joy. And in that joy, you can be both happy and unhappy. But if it's if both of those are contained with a, a sense of joy around them, then hey, so it's raining on my parade or, you know, I planned for this and it didn't work out. You can still be joyful. You can be happy, you know, or whatever. But the the joy is is kind of constant. And because happiness comes and goes. It's, it, by nature, it's, it's, it's very transitory and it changes constantly. And it's now you see it, now you don't. But people have this idea, especially about therapy, that therapy is supposed to somehow make them happy. And it's not about making them happy at all. They're, they're, sometimes people are very surprised and almost shocked when, when I remind them about that. I said, no, happiness is, therapy is not about making you happy. It's about creating a safe enough space for you to really look at who and how you are and to face the truth about that. And to embrace yourself, warts and all, in the wonderfulness of who you are. and But the total radical acceptance and embracing of what is, that's, that's 
the goal of therapy. It's not not to be happy because happiness, like I said, it's it's it comes and goes. Now, you got a new raise and then, you know, you had an accident in the car on the way home. Not to be attached to that. We hear a lot about the idea of uh, unconditional love. I'm not sure that it comes easily or logically that unconditional love is unconditional whatever is happening. Yeah. It's to be unconditional in gosh, I feel sad, let me feel my sadness fully and completely. Gosh, I'm confused, let me embrace the confusion and let it have its way with me. Yes, yeah, yeah. And so a a lot of attachment, it seems to me, and I, I guess this is a problem with language and labeling, is when we try to push something away, we're actually holding on to the very thing we're trying to avoid. Yeah, it's it's funny how that works, that, that when, when something wonderful is happening for us and we try to cling to it in the hopes that it'll stay longer, the tendency is that it starts to slip away faster. And conversely, when something is really not very comfortable at all, in, in our very attempt to push that away and to deny its space and to... Um, say, no, you cannot be in my life at this time, and our unwillingness just to be with what is, and our unwillingness to do that, oftentimes makes it just want to hang around longer. I see this with my pets, you know. I learned early on, whether it's a cat or a dog, and I want to cuddle it, and it gets uncomfortable, if I hold on, because I want what I want, when it does get away, it's less likely to come back. But if it lets me know, it wants me to let go and put it down. If I do that immediately, it sticks around. It's more likely to come back and hang around. Gosh, that whole idea of letting go, of refusing to attach, to be, again, not detached, because that sounds like we're just oblivious, but... Right. This level of non-attachment seems to me if something is real, you don't have to hold on to it. No, you don't. And, and you know, when you talk about letting go, there is no reason to let go if you haven't clung to it to begin with. <laughs> Obviously, yeah. If, if you experience life like you're putting your hand in, into a fast-flowing stream, not with a, not with a closed fist but with your fingers splayed out and let the water just pulse right on through it. And you feel that. You feel the power of the river. That seems to be a a better way of experiencing the river as opposed to try to enclose your fist around it and capture it in some way because you just want want it to do what you want to do. But that's, you know, that's the, um, the ego again. And the ego is really, it's, it's like a, um, it's a point of view that's fallen in love with itself in a lot of ways. It's just something that that wants to assume that it is the thinker, that it is the feeler, it is the it is the the speaker of these words. It's the it's the doer of these actions. It wants to take credit for that, 
But all of those things, the thoughts and the feelings and the words and the actions, they're in a sense happening all upstream of you. They're happening upstream and and the upstream is really consciousness itself. All of these things uh, are being experienced and originated by consciousness. And you are just the instrument of those things being expressed at this moment in, in space and time. You are the, the, the puppet in a sense. You are reading these lines. These lines are not being originated by you. You may think and believe that you are improvising and everybody's just making this up as they go along. That may not be the case. You may be living into a script that you've already chosen and created and you're just living it. And everybody's a hell of a good actor because it sounds like they're reading it for the very first time. That may not be the case. Maharshi used to say everything is is predestined. Everything is, um, there is no such thing as free will. Free will is illusory. Wow, there's just so many different places I can go with you on this. I want to pursue this idea of non-attachment and acceptance connected to the philosophy, the Eastern, largely largely an Eastern philosophy of acceptance. I think Westerners uh, find this abhorrent. Uh, we have this manifest destiny idea. Uh, Napoleon famously said, circumstances, what are circumstances? I create circumstances. As if you're either uh, the creator or the victim. In fact, it's a dance, I think. Uh, it's more of the middle way when it comes to acceptance. I like to think of it as where I begin, not where I end. And so a student might say, well, the way you guys are talking, then what's the point of me setting a goal if I am to not be attached to an outcome? If I'm supposed to accept things exactly as they are, why would I set a goal? And I, I wonder how you would answer that. My, my tendency is to say it's important to set goals, just not to be attached to a particular outcome. Right. right. How would you answer that? No, I, I mean, I would agree with that. Yeah, you can set as many goals as you want. You can, you can, uh, it's, it's the attachment to having a particular set of results show up that, that triggers the, on uh, the suffering really, because then you say, I know what should quote unquote should be happening. And if it doesn't unfold or unravel quite like that, then, then I'm going to be upset about it. But it is, nothing to do with you. You are just, in a sense, reading a part. I mean, you know, let me ask you a question, Michael. You've seen Romeo and Juliet. Now, did Romeo and Juliet, did they have, do they have free will? Can they, for example, choose to not kill themselves at the end of the play? I've never thought about it. I mean, my Reflexive response would be, of course, they have free will. They're totally responsible for their choices. But that would be followed quickly by my mind saying, but their choices are limited. There are many more choices, you know, variations or permutations they may not be aware of. So I've always had a problem with the idea that 
there is no free will, that everything is predestined. So help me out with that. Tell me a little, <laughs> tell me a little more about that. Well, it's, it's not something that uh, it flies in the face of reason and logic. It just does not seem to be that way. And yet, if you live into a, a, just say, I'm just going to embrace the possibility that that's what's going on, then that, that relieves you of, and everybody else, why blame anybody for anything? Well, yeah, I, I, certainly, uh, I, I certainly appreciate that. Buddha said uh, ostensibly, reportedly, if someone shoots you with an arrow and you obsess on how angry you are at that person for shooting you with the arrow, uh, perhaps you should attend to the fact that there's still an arrow sticking out of your body. (laughs) (laughs) So we obsess on the external. We're back to this idea of playing victim. And I guess my sense of life in form is that there are certain parameters or brackets or, um, you know, uh, barrier, not barriers, boundaries, perhaps a better word, within which I have free will. But it's sort of like a, throwing a bowling ball. You know, there's this gutter and that gutter, and I'm trying to stay down the middle and knock down a few pins and not end up in the gutter. So I think I have a mission that I don't fully understand or appreciate and certain things I need to accomplish as a soul, as a spiritual being in form. Uh, I have a vague sense of what they are. I aspire to be a virtuous person. I know others benefit from that. I benefit from that. But the particulars is where I get hung up. Like, how do I go about doing all of that. Again, I I don't think it's enough. I know it's not enough for me to find a cave high in the Himalayas and meditate my life away. I, I, I enjoy rock and roll and dancing and singing and playing and good food and fun. And I want to be in the world. I just don't want to be corrupted by it. And that's a challenge. Well, do you think that you can be corrupted? Can anybody be corrupted? Or if we're all just playing a part, then, then you know, so if you can put it this way, the universal cosmic author loves his villains every bit as much as he loves his heroes. That That is a step back for me. Oh. The idea that the the idea that God does not struggle, God is not a goodness that struggles with evil or wickedness, but incorporates it into the bigger plan. Yeah, that light has no meaning without shadow. That there has to be the yin and the yang. Well, yeah, the the the, the blackness needs the white. Um, in order to make it more bearable, and the white needs the blackness in order to make it more interesting. I've said to people, and, and it always uh, creates a really confusing conversation, if God hated the devil, why did he hire him to run hell for him? <laughs> yeah. Because if the devil were in charge of hell, 
it certainly would be a festival of depravity, not a place of uh, punishment. He's obviously working for God, given the myths and the stories that are handed down to us. And yet, this rarely seems to occur to anybody that God and the devil are working hand in hand as we project our, now we're, now we're approaching this duality of things, the, the, the gender, the polarities, the light and the shadow of things. And, and I promised we'd touch on duality and non-duality and You've spoken at these conferences on non-duality. Why don't you give us uh, a little bit on that? What does that mean, non-duality? Well, the world that you live in is dualistic. I mean, even words are dualistic. Uh, you uh, identify as being a body. You say, this is what I am. And, and, you, and part of that is you say, I am my thoughts, I am my feelings, I am my words, I am my actions, I am my body, I am my opinions and my beliefs and my expectations, all of these things I am. And then to contrast that, you have to have something that you are also equally identifying as not you. So there's the you, or, you know, the saying, the I, there's the I over here, and then there's the not I which is over there. That's everything else in the world. And the friction that arises between those is, is what uh, creates, creates that, that dream world. But it's interesting because the outline of who you say you are is actually the same as the inline of everything that you say you are not. Is this the same as... Uh Descartes, is it the subject-object split? Is that just, are those just other ways of talking about duality? Well, everything that you talk about is, is dualistic. You, you cannot um, talk about non-dualistic stuff because in order to do that, you use words which, like I pointed out, are very dualistic to begin with. You can kind of point to an emptiness and say, you know, go look over there. And, and, and see what's there and, and what, but, but it's not going to be here. It's not going to be in the words. At best, you can describe it possibly as it's, it's contained in the space between the words. It's in that emptiness, that silence that's between each and every sound. That's, that's, that's what's true. The rest of it is, is this noisy stuff that, that shows up. It's fascinating. It's brilliant. It's staggeringly beautiful in many ways. But it's not, it, it, it masks the great emptiness, the great void, the great silence that, that is always present all the time, 100%. Consciousness is always fully present for you. It's not, you know, there's not some of it here and then some of it around the corner or down the block or on the other side of the earth or on the other side of the galaxy, there's not a separation of consciousness at all. Everything is quintessentially only one. So separation is the illusion here. That's really the boogeyman is the idea yeah. that there's something called that, which is not this. But that's where the, the ego comes in. The ego wants it to say, I am over here. And in order for it to say, I am over here, 
it has to point to you over there saying you're over there, I'm over here. There's a difference. There's a separation. And from that initial split, which is non-existent, it's, it's like trying to, you know, separate um, characters on a movie screen. You know, where does John Wayne stop and where does the, the heroine over here begin? You know, it's all part of the same thing. But, but it's that belief that illusion that there is a separation that really animates the whole dream world and creates the dramas that we emerge, immerse ourselves into. Yeah, whenever I contemplate this large, enormously large question of separation, I remind myself that it's fear in its many forms, countless forms that divides and promotes this illusion of separation and love that unites. But love to most people is just a feeling. Um, it's only it's only recently, you were talking about joy, only recently that I saw the word joy in the word enjoy and rejoice. Yeah, yeah. And there it was staring me in the face, but no, no one ever taught me about <laughs> joy. <laughs> yeah. They told me my my teeth needed to be whiter and my breath was bad and I needed this deodorant for my underarms and all this fear that advertisers and the power brokers in the world put on us and and uh you take these joyous children happy for no reason put them in school and begin to scare the bejesus out of them and all of our problems are born from the separation and the illusions of separateness. And hopefully people are getting so disgusted with the polarization and the, the binary divisions in society that they'll look for that third element. What is it that bridges this, that ameliorates and transcends this idea of this or that? How can we make it a you and me world instead of a you or me world? Chuck, I really appreciate you being with us this afternoon. And uh, as we mentioned earlier, you've got a half a dozen books. And and uh, why don't you tell folks your website and so they can follow up, find out uh, which of your books they want to read first. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you can contact me at uh, my website, which, which is Chuck Hillig, C-H-U-C-K-H-I-L-L-I-G dot com. And I'm also very, very active on Facebook. Um, you can friend me and, and you can mention that uh, you had heard, uh, heard me on KPFK with Michael and I can friend you back and you can see what I, what I post. I'm very regular and do a lot of posts and comments on that. Um, I'm currently working on a book called Talking to Myself, two words, myself, and the subtitle is A Dialogue with Only One Voice. Because, you know, consciousness has only one voice, but it's coming out of many different mouths. But it's the same one voice. Sounds different, has different intonations and accents, but it's only one voice because there's only one consciousness, and you are that. You are that. That's great. I, I, I've asked myself many times, who am I talking to when I talk to myself? And for that <laughs> matter, who's answering? 
Yeah. And it seems to be a number of guys in my head that, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, they in fact, they argue with each other. So I know there's division up there. <laughs> Chuck Hilling, my guest. Thank you, Chuck. Be well. And thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. And uh, I look forward to our next uh, show, maybe a year or so from now. How's that? That sounds great, Michael. Thanks again for inviting me. Appreciate it so much. Very welcome. Chuck Killing, my guest in KPFK today, chuckkillig.com. And we'll be back with a few final words right after this. Stay with us. You're listening to the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School on KPFK in Los Angeles. And welcome back to the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School. Hope you enjoyed that interview. I bet you did. Chuck is... Uh, Pretty incredible guest, one of my favorite guests, and I like to have him on about once a year. I want to remind you in the few minutes we have remaining, I've got maybe five minutes here, the importance of you making some sort of contribution to KPFK. You know, $25 a year makes you a member. Now, there's nobody that is unable to afford $25 a year, and that means that you are a contributor. It means you're a family member. It means you're anteing up a little bit, even if you're unemployed or a student or a senior on fixed income. You can still know the pride of making a contribution at an appropriate, affordable level, right? Now, if you're in a better position financially and you can make a contribution of 10 or $15 a month, $25 a month, that's a significant contribution. $10 a month is $120 a year. Double that to 20 bucks a month, that's $240 a year. $20 a month, I don't think you're even going to miss. And we have people that make really much larger contributions than that. But it's not how much you donate or contribute to this tax-deductible, non-profit organization. It's that you are a contributor. You know, nine out of ten people that listen to this radio station never contribute a nickel. I contribute every month to, to this radio station. I do this program for free. I donate all of my time. So do virtually all of the other hosts and staff members. We have a few people that have to be paid because they're here every single day. And of course, there are bills that need to be paid. But even those who are employed by KPFK are making a sacrifice by being here. They do it like... And the reason a teacher is a teacher, they don't do it for the money. KPFK staff, they work here because, like a nurse, you know, a fireman or, or, or many other professions, you're never going to get rich doing it. So why do people choose to do it? Because they know they're making a positive difference. And so you're busy and you've got a job, you're going to school, you can't drive to KPFK, there's not much else you can do in terms of contributing your time or your efforts, but you still want to be a part of the family. Well, how about going right now to kpfk.org, look for Sustainers Circle, and make a contribution of 20 or $25 a month or more if you're able or less 
if that feels appropriate, but do something, make some sort of contribution. Are there thank you gifts? Are there premiums? Yeah, poke around, you'll find them. I'm not even going to waste your time running them all down. Fortunately, other hosts will do that. Thank you for telling us the details about all the wonderful premiums you can take home. My emphasis in this program, a show about consciousness every week, is that you join the family, that you make some sort of contribution to help us stay on the air, to pay the light bill, and help us avoid ever having to take corporate grants, much less commercials. These are tough times. We're in dire straits. And uh, this is not a threat, but to stay on the air, we could be like NPR and accept underwriting from corporations. There's talk of that. I would hate to see that happen. Because it's a slippery slope then to some sort of editorial influence and control. Right now, we're all free from that. Nobody's going to kick in my door and tell me what I can say about war, about poverty, about human rights and about the awareness that leads to elevated ethics and and morality and a rejection of the gross injustices in this world. Would not want that, would we? So help out, won't you? 818-985-5735 if you want to call the phone room. Problem is that we've contracted that out during COVID. Hopefully we can restart the phone rooms soon. So... Sometimes it's a little confusing to call the phone room, but you can right now, 818-985-5735. I just suggest you go to the website, kpfk.org, and in three minutes you can make a contribution. You can look over the premium thank you gifts if you'd like, and uh, wham, bam, Bob's your uncle. It's that easy, okay? kpfk.org. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Join us next week and every Tuesday afternoon at 1 o'clock for The Ageless Wisdom. You can hear this program streaming on its website, theagelesswisdom.com. You can also learn more about me at michaelbenner.com. And as always, be gentle, love life, and take care of each other. From Los Angeles, this is Michael Benner on KPFK. KPFK.